My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, the events of last week made us so much aware of how brittle our earthly life is. Australia lived through its worst natural disaster, and the statistics are alarming, with about 200 people dead, including children and little ones. More than 1,500 homes were destroyed, and maybe even more, they say. 350,000 hectares of land turned into soot and ash. And they say at a certain time, there were about 400 fires on different fronts. Those who survived lost everything. And that in just a few moments. Houses were burned down in five to ten minutes. Some vehicles were too slow for the violent flames and were burned to ashes along the road. And in some cases even were those who tried to escape in it. photos and with it the evidence of a past are lost it is almost in some cases if people's identity was uh, was just wiped out important papers like contracts insurance policies ID documents and passports everything lost this is not something that you can go to the shop for next week and buy it and it's all restored it is it's going to take time it will call for a lot of courage support and resilience to go back to sift through the debris Pull down the lonely chimneys now standing like memorials of a once happy past to build a new future. In the meantime, the victims have to do with the borrowed clothes. They eat out of the hands of willing support groups and they are driven around, perhaps not even where they want to go because they want to go back. Then, of course, there is the inevitable planning of funerals of lost ones. Only a month ago, and a bit more, we celebrated the birth of Christ, the Son of God. For many, this was just another time to enjoy, whilst there was no room for the child of Bethlehem. Others maybe for the first time in their life have heard the gospel of the good news about the Savior who was born and of the peace with God and the forgiveness of sins because we proclaim this message, peace on earth. And then this disaster. 
How do you reconcile the message of a loving God with the reality of a killer fire? How do you bring together the peace message of God who loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and also the love, the loss of loved ones who died in this uncontrollable bushfire? Even Christians who have been following the Lord for many years now ask, why God? In times like these, there is only but one source of comfort, one source of reassurance, and that is the Word of God. And today we do ask, why God? In doing research for this sermon, I searched the internet on two hit words as a phrase, human suffering. My search browser came up with 4.9 million articles found. Indeed, suffering and why it happens is very high on the agenda of human thought. But when the non-believer, the atheist, would uh, come, he would ask something like this. There is too much suffering in this world. In a world with so much suffering, there cannot be a God. Because God cannot allow suffering, or if he is there, he has certainly lost control over the suffering and the pain. Christians who believe in the sovereign God, who never makes mistakes, are then charged with what is called theodicy. Now, theodicy is more or less a, uh, something to say, well, you better cover for God now. You better argue that he's still good. If God is sovereign, and if God providentially controls all things in his universe, how can he not be the author of evil? How can evil exist in this world? How do we justify the actions of God in causing suffering and pain? We are supposed to defend God. But we cannot. He is God. And we've read there in Job all the wonderful things that, that God has done. And he, he summons Job and he says, Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I created this? When I called in existence this? And, and how, how is it that you can now try to put on trial the creator of the universe? So we cannot, but we have to try to understand the questions asked. And even the questions in our own mind. Well, we could begin from the problem itself. We could begin by trying to work out what the problem is while we're still part of the problem. And that doesn't take you anywhere. I'll try to, to explain. One thing that all of us must keep in mind is that suffering and pain in this dispensation 
cannot be argued away. It is just one of those things that you and I just can't say it won't happen. Even the atheist cannot, by denying the existence of God, diminish it. The argument goes like this. If there is a God, then he allows that. So he's, he's a bad God. Let's get him out of the way. So you get God out of the way, and what do you have? Pain and suffering. The atheist has no basis to stand upon to even begin explain the meaning of pain and suffering. The, the godless is more confused in times like this. How can the atheist explain or make more acceptable the gruesome death of hundreds of people? By pointing a finger to God and, of course, then, if you look very carefully between the lines, it's always just the God of the Christians. Why then can you point a finger to God while you're a part of the problem? The only argument the atheist can come up with is just to say that a loving God would not allow it while still finding himself on the quicksand of his own illogical argument. There will still be earthquakes and droughts and floods and famines. The atheist will have to admit that all people on earth are then, if it's not in the hands of God, in the hands of a blind and senseless thing called faith which might strike anyway, anytime, for no apparent reason or purpose. If anything is unfair, I would like to think this is unfair. It's unfair, it's horrific, it's irrational, it's horrifying, and it's ridiculous. The problem with atheists and those who do not believe is that they begin in the wrong place. When he refers to good and benevolent or even evil, he of course works with definitions that cannot work because it has no foundation of an absolute framework. What is evil for the atheist is not necessarily evil for the next. What is good for one might not be good for the other. In fact, who God is or supposed to be can only be understood if there is some common ground to work from. Now, if a God of love, that's the argument, allows this, he can't be good. But most atheists would argue that abortion is good. Or that marriage is outdated. Or that parents have no right to discipline their children. Or that euthanasia is desirable. Now, if this is good, what definition of good or love do you apply then when you look at God? In a world where God is not honored or acknowledged, where greed and exploitation are rampant, where murderers are considered 
to be nothing but mentally disturbed or socially indisposed people, you find it hard that some do have the hide to accuse God of allowing evil and suffering. There's a little book written by John Blanchard. He's a British writer and he is excellent in what he writes. After September 11, John Blanchard wrote a book with this title, and if you can get it, you, it's only four, three, four dollars. Where was God on September 11? I love that book. It's a striking title, but more than that, John Blanchard, if you read very carefully, never answers that question. The only thing he does is he, is he would like to argue with the one posing this question, where do you come from when you ask this question? Because that exposes the weakness of your argument. But when we start with the Bible, we can not solve the problem, but we can understand with the Bible as your obvious starting point, the existence of evil is not a significant problem at all. In fact, the existence of evil is far more problematic for the unbelievers. Without a consistent standard, or standard of right and wrong, or evil and good, how can evil be defined? The problem of evil cannot be logically formulated on non-Christian grounds. And even if the non-believer wants to talk about God, whom Christians believe in, about his goodness and about the supposed evil, then he must assume Christian grounds in order to pose that problem. So when we look at the Bible, we look at God not according to our human mindsets. In other words, when we talk about God, we cannot think about God according to our, what we think. We need to search the scriptures and from it explain evil's purpose in this world. Therefore, we could read in the Bible this morning, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even the things we might call evil. When Kenneth Gawthin, or Cawthin, a non-biblical scholar, thinks about suffering and evil, he comes to this following conclusion. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this one. It's a very interesting, but a very flawed argument. He says, I propose that we must limit the power of God in order to preserve the goodness of God. You get that? Let's limit the power of God. That way we will understand that he's good. I believe that the reason that God does not prevent or overcome some evil is that God cannot. Because only a suffering or a struggling or a limited God 
will do. I have developed a doctrine of God along these lines. It sustains itself in my thinking to the extent that it can organize the totality of my experience and provide a way of coping with life in a satisfactory way. What he says is this. When I look at the bushfires, for instance, and I see all the pain and the suffering, and I want to fit God into this whole scheme of things, I have to limit God. I have to say that God cannot be God sovereign. And if I can do that, what happens is, all of a sudden I understand God. Because it fits within my framework. What he says is, Christians are embarrassed with God. God cannot do good and bad and evil at the same time. God cannot be loving and punishing at the same time. To solve this problem, we need to think about God as being not so impotent as we thought. And therefore, Richard Dawkins and his, uh, and his colleagues came up with a book. I'm not so sure who the author is, but the title of this book is Our God, or God is not great or powerful. We must limit him. We must take him. We must make him a suffering and a struggling God. Now, uh, Cawthon says this purely because it sustains itself in my thinking. In other words... If I cannot understand God as he says, as he revealed himself in the scriptures, well, then I make my own God, and with that I'm happy. He wants to make God less to fit in his mind. And then only will he worship God as God. Well, the problem is just that he will not worship God. He will worship himself. Because he made a God for himself. Who wants to worship a struggling God? You know, like the people of the Old Testament, they had old Dagon there. You remember that story of Dagon? There he was. And they put the ark of the Lord in the presence of Dagon. And they got there the next morning. What did Dagon do? He fell over. So what do you do with your God? That's, that's, that's bad news for you. You pick up your God and you put him straight up again. It's embarrassing. So they got there the next morning. He fell over again and he broke something. So what do you do? You patch him up. We don't do that with God because it's not necessary. Because if we limit God, who else will we give the rest of the sovereignty belonging to him? So you see, if you limit God... Who else gets the rest? Our God is sovereign. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our subordinate standards, help us to think about God in a way God reveals himself in the Bible. And it says, God from all eternity did by his own will and most uh, wise and holy counsel freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And having done this, God is neither the author of sin, nor has he violated the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or possibility of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, 
there's, there's a lot of theology in that. Let's just take that and say, God is sovereign. Dr. Lorraine Butner, who wrote an excellent book on the sovereignty of God, says, God is seen as the great and mighty king who has appointed the course of nature and who directs the course of history even down to its minutest details. He decree, his decree is eternal, unchangeable, holy, wise, and sovereign. It extends not merely to the course of the physical world, but to every human in history. And yes, that includes, of course, the devastating bushfires of last week. Here we have to bow before the truth of God's word. And we have to say, even like a Job, when God took him through all these things, he fell on his face and he confessed his sins. Paul in Romans chapter 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has, who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Melanchthon, who was a friend of John Calvin in the days of the Reformation, writes, All things turn out according to the divine predestination, not only the works we do outwardly, but even the thoughts we think inwardly. Further, he says, There is no such thing as chance or fortune, nor is there a readier way to gain the fear of God and to put our whole trust in Him than to be thoroughly versed in the doctrine of predestination. Only when we understand something of who God is, as He revealed Himself in the Bible and the works of His hands, only when we from His declared will understand His sovereignty, that He is God and He does as He pleases, then we dare to ask, why God? Allow me to, just in short, point out a few principles from the scriptures. When God created this world, everything was good. And in some cases, I think, we start with our evangelism too deep into the scriptures. We need to start with evangelism right in the beginning. Because if we skip the fall and its consequences, we find it very difficult to even begin to explain the grace and the providence of God. God said, after he created, God saw what he had made, and that it was very good. It was perfect without flaw. That's how God made it. God created men, male and female, with rational and immortal souls, endued with knowledge and righteousness and true holiness after his own image. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power also to fulfill it. They were free to do 
as God commanded them. That was the perfect world without bushfires, without earthquakes and floods, without pain and suffering. It was there. That's how God made it. The world you and I know and experience every, every day is miles apart from that perfect world. But when the fall, which is when sin then entered into this world by willing, willingly being disobedient to God, our first parents sinned and plunged everything into pain and suffering. So we have to take responsibility for this world. Therefore, it says here in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, as we read it, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. You see, everything we see and touch in this world is touched by sin and, and, and carries all the DNA and the footprint of our disobedience. That's why fires can run away and... And, and it looks like nature is turning against itself. And that explains in some way why evil is in this world. That explains to us the earthquakes and the floods and the diseases and the famines and the war and the destruction. But, there's always a but in the Bible, isn't it? A comma. A comma to say there's more to the story. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. From all eternity the Father gave him, that is Christ, a people to be his own, to be redeemed, to be called, to be justified, to be sanctified, and to be glorified by him in time. And when Jesus then, in the fullness of time, was born, he took upon himself man's nature, but he did not sin. And when at the time that God ordained, he was nailed to the cross. He purchased redemption as he cried out, it is finished. And that changed 
everything. Now there's hope. Now we don't ask, why God, in the sense of blaming God what has happened? We ask God, why the free redemption in Christ Jesus? Why did you remember us who deserve to die because of our rebellious and sinful nature against you? Why did you allow allow your beloved son to experience forsakenness on the cross? So we can be saved from eternal hell. That is the question. That is the question we should ask. Why, God, did you look upon us in your mercies and grace and did not destroy us completely? We cannot blame God for the broken world we live in. We can only thank Him for the grace in Christ Jesus. And then we look forward to the day that He will come and return and where it says here, that uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of, uh, as in the pains of childbirth right to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now we look forward to something better. We don't want to live in this world. I went to Bell Reynolds on Friday uh, for a funeral and uh, the dust storms. Unbelievable. You, we had to turn on your, your headlights in the middle of day. And I came back four hours later and it was still the same thing. Now who wants to live in this world forever? I don't want to. I'm I'm looking forward to something where it's beautiful, where it's bright, where it's perfect, where there's no pain, where there's no suffering, and everything will just be wonderful. All of that is made possible by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again one day. So when we look at the ashes of what is now called Black Saturday, Let us then look beyond all of this and say, Lord, please be merciful and forgive us our sins and help us to focus on the cross of Jesus and help us to, with with eagerness, look forward to the return of Christ. Let's not be frivolous as this one person, I believe, said on TV uh, I don't need to fear hell anymore because I've already, gone, I've already gone through it. Whereas someone else apparently said, I better go to church now because I've seen something of what might happen if I don't worship God. The only difference is it won't be ten minutes 
The only difference is it won't be a few weeks. It will be forever. Why, God? Well, Jesus cried out on the cross to why? Why have you forsaken me? And with that, he made it possible for us to live as God's children. And then we can, with the Apostle Paul, say, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Yes, we might say like Job to the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And he didn't say that with a smile on his face. But he knew that it's in the hands of God. So when we ask why God, we could just as well ask why Lord have you not forsaken us completely? But why have you done that to your son? And God answers from heaven for your salvation. Amen. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we could look at the reality of an imperfect world around us, that you remind us that we are frail and that we are here one day but gone the next. Help us, Father, not to blame you, but help us to repent. Turn away from what is wrong and help us, Lord, to, by the love of Christ, help restore through the message of the gospel the rebellion against God. In Jesus' name, amen.